0: every day. And I pray that you'd help us to uh, never get to the place where we just uh, assume that your goodness will be there. Uh, Lord, we can take confidence because we know that it will be there, but I pray that you'd help us to be forever grateful of it, that we would not grow so accustomed to it that we don't give you thanks and praise for it each and every day of our lives. And Lord, I pray that you'll bless the teaching the preaching of your word today. May you guide and direct our hearts and our thoughts. And may it be a help and a blessing to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, if you will, let's take our Bibles and we're going to be dealing with the uh, the subject of law and grace. We, we did something a little bit different in this book. We've been trying to do just a high-level overview of each of these books as it's kind of really just a survey uh, of each book. Give you a little bit of the historical background and setting, uh, the context of some of the writings and it does help us to better understand some of those things as we come to God's Word uh, and read some of the Scriptures. It helps us to understand a little bit of the setting, who it's written to, who it's written from, what is the occasion of the writing, You know, is there some particular reason why it's been written. The book of Galatians is one of those books that Paul wrote uh, with a very strong emphasis on the fact that the, the churches of Galatia had been pressured um, by... Uh, some of the Judaizers of the day, the, the, the folks that were the religious leaders supposedly uh, of that day that were uh, putting the burden of keeping of the law uh, as part of the doctrine of salvation and justification. And, and Paul uh, basically spends the entirety of the book addressing this issue uh, with the churches of Galatia that, uh, listen, don't, don't be quickly removed from this. Uh, he said, you started in faith. Let's not go back to the works thing. Let's not get back to this idea of being under the bondage of the law and under the works. Uh, we spent a, a little bit of time, and rather than just giving a quick overview of this book and moving on, because this truth deals so um, so intertwined and intimately with another subject that we'll be teaching on, Lord willing, starting this Wednesday, which is the issue of repentance in Scripture because they are so closely intertwined and, and intermingled, I felt it very necessary to kind of go through this particular doctrine in the book of Galatians. So we spent time last week uh, kind of laying some foundation and getting about halfway through some of the material on the issue of uh, law and grace and uh, the idea that uh, no, no, one, no one has ever been justified by the keeping of the law. The Bible is very clear about that. Paul speaks of that. Um, and if you think about it, and this is very important for us to make a distinction here, because we, we sometimes think of uh, the keeping of the law and committing sin as separate issues. But the truth is, um, sin, the, the simplest definition of sin is the violation of God's law, uh, God's moral law. So we would say then that the keeping of the sin, uh, I'm sorry, the keeping of the law, <laughs> there we go, keeping of the law, in essence, is uh, becoming removed from or forsaking sin. If we keep the law, we're, we're, we're taking the things that we know are going to be sinful and we're, we're pushing those back and we're saying, I'm going to keep the law. And so the idea of, of forsaking sin is, is really almost as synonymous as using the term the keeping of the law. Uh, we would jumble all of that together into one term called works. Works. Uh, we're trying to live holy, we're trying to live godly. And so it's important for us to understand that distinction and and define this as such, because the law tells us this. Now, there are several laws that are given. There are what are called ceremonial laws. These are laws that are given for the purpose of worship, and they distinctly give uh, rules and regulations for the nation of Israel specifically to uh, how they are to worship God in the temple. There were certain laws given that were regarding the temple itself there were some laws that were identification laws. The nation of Israel were the only ones that were to hold to those laws because they were solely for the purpose of distinguishing them from other nations. Um, For instance, the law of circumcision was literally a law that was given for no other purpose than identifying them as the children of God. Um, And then we have uh, moral laws that God has given in Scripture. Those are laws that all of us keep. Now, the other laws, the ceremonial laws and even identification laws, there may be some good things in there that we can look at and we can use as influence on our lives, but they're not things that we are held to because we're not Jews. We're not part of the Jewish nation. And so I wouldn't say that they're um, they're not useful to us because there are some things that help us to see God's character, uh, God's holiness, God's uh, re- the reverence that's due to God in some of the laws and the rules of worship that were given, uh, the highness of our God and not to think of him too small or too little uh, than what he is. And so there's some benefit even to those laws, but we were not ever held to those. We are held to God's moral laws uh, throughout uh, Scripture. However, the keeping of those, if we were to keep every single law that God ever gave to mankind, it would not justify us in the sight of God. That is the important thing here. This is what Paul is addressing the churches of Galatia about. He said, there are some men out here that are troubling you, they're deceiving you, they're teaching you that in order for you to be justified in order for you to be saved, in other words, in order for you, in order for you to have your life um, made just as though you've never sinned, for God to, to give you that imputed righteousness that He speaks of, that that does not come by the keeping of the law. The law is what teaches us, and we talked all about this last week, the, the law is what teaches us the sinfulness of our sin. If we didn't have the law, we wouldn't understand our sin. We wouldn't have a, a, an idea of the sinfulness or the, the, the penalty of what it costs Uh, We wouldn't understand how it violates God's holiness and God's justice. And so the law in and of itself is not a wrong thing. And the law is not uh, what has condemned us of our sin. Uh, It is our sin that condemned us of our sin. The law just told us about the condemnation, helped us to understand that. But the law was not a bad thing in and of itself. Uh, But neither could it save a man. It could not justify him. All it could do was to show us the sinfulness of sin in the eyes of a just God and to show us the penalty of that sin. Now, that's kind of where we left off last week. I made a statement at the very end of last week um, that I want to start from this springboard and move forward from here, and that is this: uh, that I do not, nor do you, have to keep the law in order to get saved. I do not have to keep the law. In order to be saved. Because again, we've already established the keeping of the law is considered works. It is my righteousness that I am trying to do. And those would be works. If we came across and said, well, you've got to live this way, this way, and this way before God will save you. We would say you're depending on your works for your salvation. And that would not be salvation. That's not by faith. You do not have to keep the law in order to get saved. Now, that is crucial, and you'll see as we start dealing with this on Wednesday night, with our understanding of what repentance is. Repentance, and we'll just give you a bird's eye statement here to to kind of whet your appetite for Wednesday night. Repentance is not forsaking of our sin. I'm going to leave you with that statement. We'll tell you what it is dealing with. Because repentance is in Scripture, it is a part of salvation, but how we define and understand what repentance is according to Scripture is has been greatly misunderstood in the day that we live. If we were to say that repentance is forsaking of our sin, then we're saying that you have to keep the law in order to be justified. It becomes a works salvation. We cannot have that. And so... That'll kind of get your wheels turning, especially if you've wondered about this or had thoughts about this or maybe have thought or been taught something differently. Uh, That'll get your wheels turning for Wednesday night. And I would encourage you, uh, if you're questioning that, wondering, well, what is he talking about there? Be here Wednesday night. Please, please, please don't miss it. Vital, vital, important. Uh, And we will be at least two Wednesday nights on it, more than likely three Wednesday nights on the subject. Uh, And depending on how, how well we move through the material and there's understanding of it, Uh, We may even take a fourth one, uh, possibly. So, very important doctrine that must, folks, in the day we live, it must be understood. Uh, We, I believe, in many cases have mistaught some things that will cause some people to be trusting what they have done for their salvation. And, folks, you know this, that if we're trusting works, we are not saved, no matter how sincere we are on it. We are not saved. And we've got to understand this doctrine. So help us with this and be here Wednesday night. If you have any question at all, or if you already are settled on it, but you don't really have all the Scripture behind it to to give a defense of it, again, be here. All right, Be here Wednesday to help with that. So this is kind of where we left off with uh, the book of Galatians last week, that by the keeping of the law shall no no flesh be justified. Uh, In fact, in chapter 3 of Galatians, if you'll take a moment to look there, in verse number 11, this is kind of the last verse that we dealt with as we left the hour. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 11. <clears throat> but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is what? Is what? Evident. In other words, Paul said this is plainly understood. It's not something. This is not one of those deep mysteries of Scripture. This is something that is evident. It's plainly seen. That no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by what? So we see a contrast here, and this one verse is probably the key to unlocking the book of Galatians. um, Because you'll find that he contrasts here the keeping of the law with faith. And he, he, he looks at them as opposites of each other in the matter of justification. Now, does that mean that they are at war against each other? No, because the law and faith after salvation become vitally important we begin to see that the keeping of the law is something that teaches us how a holy God would like for us to live. We see his holiness. We see his goodness. We see his his um, his righteousness in the law and uh, so we we see a lot of those types of things, but we are not bound under the law. And those are the key things that Paul is trying to deal with here. In fact, as he gets to uh the end of uh, I believe it's chapter 4, uh he he kind of Uh, talks about the fact uh, that, uh, I think it was chapter 4, I I may have the wrong chapter here because it's been a week since I looked at it uh, closely, but uh, at the end of one of these chapters here, very, very clearly he takes an opportunity to say, now listen, just because of this, it doesn't mean that the law is useless. It doesn't mean that we go out here and we just live our lives the way we want to. Because liberty that Paul is speaking about here in Galatians is not liberty to go out and live our life however we want to live. It is liberty from the bondage of the law so that we are free, now follow this, so that we are free to walk in the Spirit. Not free to just live by the way we want to according to the flesh. In fact, he goes on to say about the fact that if we're still living according to the flesh, we're still under that bondage. It's because of our works. And so we're not free to just live however we want to live. Uh, we're free to walk in the Spirit to pursue after the things of the Lord. And we're not under the bondage of the law any longer. We're going to take a few moments to look at a couple of other passages. So let's start in Romans chapter number 4, if you will. Romans chapter number 4. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here, and then we're going to move over into the book of Hebrews. We'll start in chapter 4 and verse 1. And if you have ever heard, and some people have been taught this, that... In the Old Testament, people were saved by the keeping of the law. How many of you have heard that taught before somewhere? Okay, Uh, A lot of people hold to the fact that there was a different way to be saved in the Old Testament. However, the Bible and the Apostle Paul lays this to rest. As we come to chapter 4 of the book of Romans, he's very, very clear about this. In chapter 4, verse number 1, the Bible says, What should we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works... Now, what did we say the works were? The works are the keeping of the law, all right? So if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof the glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? In other words, listen, Paul's saying, listen, there's people that maybe have said these things, and maybe even you think these things, but he says, let's go to a source that is right and true. Let's go to the Scripture and see what it says. And by the way, I think that's always the best case scenario, isn't it? We may think things, we may believe things, but ultimately it comes down to what does the Bible say? So he says in verse number 3, for what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God. Do we see that? Verse 3. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for what? Okay, it does not say he kept the law and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It says he believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. What does it take to go to heaven? I was listening to a man a few weeks ago, and he made a. Uh, he was asked that he was doing a public forum, and he was out on the street with a, a microphone. And somebody came, and they were talking and dialoging about salvation. And uh, the person asked him, said, "Well, what is it? Re- what is required to go to heaven?" And without even blinking an eye, he said, "Perfection." And the lady said, uh, "Well, you just told me that nobody is perfect." She said, "That's right, nobody's perfect." She said, "Then how do you get?" She said, "Are there people in heaven?" He said, "Yes, there are." She said, "How did they get there?" He said, "Easily, grace. Grace is when God gives us the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ, because perfection is the only standard that will get us to heaven, and you and I both know that we cannot have perfection." If we make it to heaven, it has to be by what Christ did and His perfection being placed on our account. The Bible uses the phrase imputed righteousness, not earned. It was given to us. It was placed on our account. Now, how do we get this imputed righteousness? Paul tells the Romans. He says it's by believing what God said. It's by putting our faith in Him, by trusting Him. He says in verse number four, uh, verse number three, uh, for what to say of the Scripture. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. How did how did Abraham become righteous? Was Abraham perfect? <laughs> Not on your life. Abraham did a lot of crazy things, didn't he? He lied to people. He was a liar. He to, he told the king that, that Sarah was his sister. He lied to him. He was deceitful. He tried to he tried to do the promise of God his way because he was. Wondering if God was even going to do it. He he followed out. He went to his handmaid and had a son with his handmaid because he's trying to help God with his promise as if God needed the help. I mean, Abraham was not perfect. How then could we say that Abraham was righteous? Because he believed God. And God took the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and put it on Abraham's account. By the way, when you and I get saved, that's the exact same thing he does for us. Now, notice what he says in verse 4. Now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So every single one of us has this same opportunity. Even as David also described the uh, the blessedness of the man, speaking of Abraham, David was talking about Abraham, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without, notice this, without what? Works. What did we say works is? works is the keeping of the law. It was imputed not by keeping the law, but was imputed by their faith. Saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not, here's that word again, impute sin. He doesn't put that sin on our account. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? Understand, circumcision was a work, wasn't it? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision. Abraham was a man of faith long before God gave him the command to be circumcised. It wasn't in the keeping of the law. But in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith. And by the way, that's an important, that's an important statement. Which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe. Though they be not circumcised that righteousness might be imputed unto them also unto them who those that were uncircumcised those that had not kept the law and the father of circumcision to whom uh, 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 to them who are not of the circumcision only but who also walk in the steps of that what faith of our father Abraham which he had being yet uncircumcised for the promise this is the promise that God made to Abraham For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of what? Faith. How was Abraham saved? By the keeping of the law? No. The keeping of the law was a seal. It was a sign. Let's say this. It was a testimony of his faith. Which, by the way, is the same thing about good works in the day you and I live. It is a sign, it is a testimony of the redeeming work that the Lord Jesus Christ has done in our hearts by faith alone, not by the works. The works do not have to precede the redemption and the justification of a man's soul. But they surely should follow it. Why? Because it's a testimony. Now notice what he says here as we get to verse number 14. For if they, uh, let's go back to verse 13. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression, therefore it is of faith, that it might be by grace. By grace. "...to the end of the promise, might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many what? Nations." How how in the world could that be? Many nations? I thought Abraham was the father of Israel. How then can he be the father of many nations? because He was the Father that had the seed of justification promised to Him that was to save many, even those that were not under the law. And that justification came by the same faith that Abraham had, and He is the Father of us, not by our works or the keeping of the law, but by faith. And notice what He says here, "...before Him whom He believed, even God, who quickened the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were, "...who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in what faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb." So remember the promise God told him about having the seed that would be from him, that would be the blessing of all nations? And... Uh, Of course, he he tried to do it his way and went and had a a son by a handmaid. And that wasn't God's plan, was it? He was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 and God had promised them a son. And Sarah laughed. You remember that? She didn't have that faith. Abraham did. Notice what it says. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in what? Faith, giving glory to God. And I want you to underline, asterisk, bold print, everything you can, verse 21. It is the key verse of, I think, salvation in all of Scripture. And being fully persuaded that what He had promised, He was able to perform, and therefore it was imputed to Him for righteousness. Those two verses, when we say that the way you get saved is by trusting God that what He said He would do to save us would save us, those two verses, there's no verse in Scripture, I think, any stronger than these two about how we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If somebody says, okay, I understand I'm supposed to have faith in what Christ did for me, what does that mean? How do I have faith? Right here it is being fully persuaded that what he, God, had promised, he, God, was able to perform. And therefore, it was imputed him for righteousness. No matter how unseemly that promise seemed in Abraham's eyes, no matter how impossible it it seemed to be, no matter how difficult a task and improbable it seemed, Abraham said, Lord, you said it, I'm going to believe it. I'm just going to trust it no matter how impossible it seems or how unlikely it seems, that simply by putting our faith in Him, He's going to save my soul. It is what He said. And it is His promise to us. And when I say that the way we get saved is by putting our faith and our trust in it, it's what, what Abraham did here in verse 20 and 21. I'm fully persuaded that because God said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If I put my faith in Him, and what He promised me on when He died and was buried and rose again, that I would have eternal life through putting my faith in Him. If I trust that with all my heart, being fully persuaded of it, that this is what saves me. The Bible says that according to that, verse number 21, Therefore it was imputed unto Him for righteousness. Not the keeping of the law. In fact, Paul seems to go out of his way in verse four, or chapter 4, doesn't he? To tell these people over and over and over again, this didn't come to Abraham by keeping of the law. This didn't come by him being circumcised. This didn't come by him doing works. This came by one way. By him putting faith in what God said. Did God tell us that if we would put our faith in Him, He would save us? Yes then let's be fully persuaded of it. Let's trust it. Trust it so much that if God was lying, we would be lost because I'm just taking Him at His word. I'm putting God to the test. We would use the word proving God. If He said it, I'm going to believe it. There was a song years ago, I've shared it before, back in the 70s, 80s, kind of got popular among youth groups and stuff. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. My dad years ago was talking about that in the service. He said, you know, God said it, and it really doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. It's still settled. The truth is still there. And that is that salvation is by faith alone. I want to make three statements here. Number one, salvation is by faith alone without works. Number two, salvation is by faith alone without works. And number three, salvation is by faith alone without works. I could give you many more points, but I think it would be redundant. Folks, I cannot emphasize this enough. We're living in a day where even good King James Version Bible-believing churches have this mixed up. Salvation is by faith alone without works. End of story. Do I have to forsake my sin to get saved? No, I do not. We'll talk more about this on Wednesday, and we will find out what does it mean then when it says repent. We're going to look at what the Bible says repentance is, because I'd far rather trust it than some man, wouldn't you? And so we're going to take some opportunity to do that, and hopefully by the time we get done, you will have a very, very clear and easily understood doctrine of repentance established in your heart and in your mind that is scripturally in line. And hopefully be a help to others that may have this issue misconstrued. Let's look now at Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to spend probably the rest of our time here. I've got some additional notes that aren't quite as crucial to this uh, that I may or may not get to this week. I'll probably... We'll probably end our study on Galatians this week and just move on. Um, And I'll I'll have these notes available if you'd like to get a hold of them. Uh, Hebrews chapter number 8. And uh, I'm going to read, it's 13 verses. We're going to read through the chapter again. Very important chapter, I believe. (coughs) Let's go in verse number 1. We'll start in verse number 1. Now, of these things which we have spoken, this is the sum. In other words, he's dealt with some things in chapter 6 in chapter 7. I would urge you, I would urge you to take some time to thoughtfully read. Hebrews is a little bit of a deeper book. Um, and so when you go through reading it, don't rush. Don't, don't, don't go through it quickly. But especially as you get to chapters 5 through, I would say, chapter 10, really the whole book is, is foundational to the truth. But really, 5 through chapter about 10... Is, is a doctrine that I think is so vitally important that ties in with this idea. Um, we have in the book of Hebrews a clear distinction given of what's called the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Alright? Um, New Testament word that's often used, in fact, they use them interchangeably here in Hebrews chapter 9, 8 and 9, is covenant and testament. You wonder why our Bible is divided into two portions. The Old Testament and the New Testament. And the reason was there was the Mosaic covenant that God made and the Abrahamic covenant that God made. <clears throat> and up until Calvary, they were to follow the law, not for redemption, but they were to follow it because they were under that, <clears throat> that bondage of the law. But that Old Testament, or that Old Covenant was done away with because it was imperfect. The blood of calves and goats could never redeem a man of sin. Uh, The Bible is very clear about that in the book of Hebrews. And that a New Testament or a new covenant was needed. And this is what's spoken of here in chapter 6 through chapter 10. Now look in verse number 8. That new covenant was made at Calvary. So much so that when the New Testament was made, the Bible says that the veil of the temple, that was the separation from men and the holiest of holies, the presence of God himself. There was a thick veil between them. That when Christ died on Calvary, that old covenant was done away with, and we now have direct access to God. Could you imagine the first time that those priests walked in and were able to look with their own eyes into the Holy of Holies? You and I have the opportunity, according to Hebrews, any time that we desire to come into the very throne room of God. How did we get this access? Because of a better covenant one that the Lord Jesus Christ made for us on Calvary. Look with me in verse 8. Now, of these things which we have spoken, this is the psalm. We, meaning those of us here in the New Testament now, after Christ has died, we have such an high priest who is set at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have someone also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests after uh, that offer gifts according to the what? According to the law. Who serve under, under the example of the shadow of heavenly things. So this tabernacle that's in heaven, that is not made by men's hands, was not pitched by men's hands, was pitched by the Lord. That these things in the Old Testament. You, folks, you can come on in. You're welcome to come on in. Absolutely. It's not a problem at all. And uh, th- these folks in the Old Testament, uh, they, they had this tabernacle that was a shadow or a picture of what was in heaven. And uh, the Bible says this in verse number 5, "...who serve unto the example of the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown to thee in the mount. Now, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a..." what? a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place should have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant. And I regarded them not, saith the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to the unrighteous, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to, what? Vanish away. The old covenant. The law that was given. That old covenant that he made. It's ready to vanish away. Why? Because a new covenant has been established at Calvary. Now look what he says in verse chapter 9. Then verily, the first covenant, which also had ordinances of divine service, and worldly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, and the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant, lay around, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot speak now speak particularly, now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself for the heirs of people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. While as the first tabernacle, the tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in the which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could... Not make him that did the service what? Perfect, as pertaining to the conscience. Which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of Reformation. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither of the, by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his own blood he entered what? Once, He entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us all. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify through the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christian liberty means we are not under the bondage of the law in works any longer. It's been done away. We have been given liberty now to walk in the Spirit. Not to live the way we want, because the old flesh nature still wants to do things that are wrong. But we now have the Holy Spirit living inside of us that causes us to have a desire to walk after Him. Notice in verse number 15, And for this cause He is the mediator of the new what? The New Testament. He's the one that's the mediator of it. That by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now let's go to verse number 10, chapter number 10 for sake of time. You can read through the rest of chapter 9. It's, it's a great chapter. Let's go to chapter 10 very quickly and we'll be done here in just a moment. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things... Can never, do we see that word? Can what? Never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not, would they not have been ceased to be offered, because that of the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written to me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the, what's the next word here? Law. God does not have pleasure in those. Then said he, Lo, I am come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first covenant, if you will, that he may establish the second. No longer under law. We are now under grace. By the which we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Notice this phrase, and I love it. Once for all and every priest standeth daily ministering the offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but this man speaking of Christ after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of god from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. for by the offering by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified whereof the holy ghost also is a what witness to us for after that he hath said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their what? Into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. The law still is a schoolmaster. It still teaches us things. We're just not under its bondage anymore. It teaches us the holiness of God. It helps us to understand his nature and his character. It helps us to do things that are pleasing to him. But we are not under its bondage anymore. We are now under grace. Our righteousness does not save us, but only the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been given to us saves us. And their sins and iniquities, he says. Well, I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Uh, We're going to deal with some of this in chapter 10 as we get into our uh, discussion on repentance this Wednesday. And so I'm going to kind of leave it there because I don't want to launch into a new study there yet. Galatians is a tremendous book. Paul, very, very concerned that the Judaizers of that day were pressuring the churches of Galatia to come back to the idea that works and the keeping of the law were necessary for redemption and for justification for their salvation. Paul goes to an extreme, if you will. Lays it out very clearly in the book of Galatians. If you take time to read Galatians from this point forward, you should always remember this is, this is the, some people call it the Magna Carta on the topic of law and grace. We are not under the law anymore. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful we're under grace. That does not give us a license to sin, it gives us liberty to walk in the Spirit.